Working? Is this working or not? Now it's working. Whoa, now it's working. Okay. I did pray. Okay, so. Well, how strange are the ways of God? I mean, during the past few days, perhaps you, like my wife, Linda, and myself, perhaps you've wept over the painful events that have impacted our PCA families, the, the tragic death of a young mother, Rachel Tucker, the sudden departure of, of John Michael, beloved husband, and Patty Tate's father going on to the next world. We dare not pretend that those things do not hurt. And we dare not pretend that some of those things at times leave us confused, leave us with our heads spinning and our, our hearts aching. We struggle to understand how these things can be what our loving Lord wants to happen and we may, we may even tell ourselves that the Lord simply allows them to happen. But of course, that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that the Lord ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Now, I stand before you, and I'm not speaking academically. I'm speaking from personal hurts. You could give your own list. Let me just give you my list. My six-year-old brother, while walking home from school, was hit by a truck and killed. A cousin who was more like a brother to me and a strong believer died in a car accident when he was 40 years old, leaving a wife and three young children. I had a cousin, an older cousin, murdered in his home when he was 50. I officiated at both of my cousin's funerals. My father died of cancer in our guest room when he was only 65 years old, leaving my mother, who is now 97, a widow for the past 35 years. John Rinder Keynes III was born 18 years ago with Downs and is severely autistic. Another grandson has undergone repeated surgeries because of his struggles with Crohn's. Sorry, I forgot to turn that off. As I said, each of you could, I'm sure, could stand and share a similar list of painful situations and circumstances that have or perhaps are 
impacting your lives. It is our common experience in this world. It is our common experience in this world. It's not what was meant to be, but it is part of the reality of living in a sin-marred world. Sometimes in the light of such events, we get tempted to believe that this world is governed by blind chance. And yet we know that's not true because the scripture teaches us that the Lord rules over all. And of course, he is the Lord who has told us that his ways are not our ways and our thoughts are not his thoughts. So we're left to decide whether we believe that even in the midst of tragic events, whether we believe the Lord's purposes, though far, far, far beyond our immediate ability to understand that his purposes are in truth the unfolding of his purposes. Now, I wrestle with all that. Anyone who tells me that they don't wrestle with all that, I'm sorry, they're a liar. I wrestle with all that. Of course you do, we all do. And therefore, how grateful I am for what will become our study beginning next week. And that is the story, the historical events recorded for us in Genesis 37 through 50, those chapters which we will begin to focus upon the Lord willing next Lord's Day morning. Those chapters, in those chapters, and, 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 and I, uh, I was told last week by someone that they appreciated me giving homework assignments. Well, I, I was adjunct faculty for 20 years at Covenant College. I know how to give homework assignments. So I encourage you, read Genesis 37 through 50. Not once, not twice. Read through it several times until the story just becomes clearly familiar to you. In those chapters, we witness the hand of God at work in the midst of a, of a in the midst of a horribly dysfunctional family whose, whose lives are marred by, by tragic events, all of which we see as we read those chapters. And our advantage as we read those chapters is that we know the end from the beginning. So try to read those chapters as if you don't know the end from the beginning. Because as we read those chapters, we, we, we see, uh, we, we see uh, our Lord sovereignly, sovereignly governing all things and, and working through all these incredibly disturbing events. 
and working through this incredibly dysfunctional family, we see the Lord bringing about his good, good purposes. Now, all of that has to wait till next week because this morning I sense a need for me and you to look instead at a, at a New Testament passage that I believe powerfully informs us of truths we need to understand and believe at a moment such as this. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Turn to Romans chapter 8. And now you need to be patient with me. Because from this point forward, I'm winging it. I've done that on many occasions. People at Covenant Presbyterian Church would tell you that there were a number of Sundays over the 30 years that I would stand up and say, just put aside whatever the outline is that's been given to you because I just sense a need <laughs> to turn to a, a different passage of scripture. <coughs> so look with me here at Romans 8. And look down to verse 18. Listen to what Paul writes. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul has the audacity to write that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Believe that? You believe that? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It waits for the end of this time in which we live. Now look at what we're told. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And clearly, the him who subjected it is the Lord. There can be no other answer to who is this one who subjected it. Subjected it in hope. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, and I ask you to just take note of this word, has been groaning. We're going to come back to that word. Look at that. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. The creation groans in childbirth, waiting for the new world to be delivered. It waits, it groans in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation is groaning, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we groan inwardly, 
Now, I'm so grateful that Paul wrote that. I'm so grateful I can go back to verse 18 and read again. I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is be revealed to us and realize that Paul is not a Pollyanna. He's not pretending that everything is just, you know, popsicles and chocolate ice cream because he writes just a few verses later later that as the creation groans, so we groan. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I am an impatient man. And so I find Paul's words at that point to be a cold slap in the face. We wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. The Spirit, again, now for the third time, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings. With groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. The Spirit intercedes for you who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and King. The Spirit intercedes for you according to the will of God. You groan, and the Spirit hears your groans and says to God the Father, let me tell you what that means. Let me tell you what they need. Let me tell you what their groans indicate. And we know, we know, Paul says. I mean, you could underline, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Skip down to verse 38. And Paul writes almost as a conclusion to all of this that I'm sure, I know, it is beyond dispute that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The creation groans. We groan. And the Spirit groans with us. But at the same time, we live in the light of a hope. The creation lives 
in anticipation of what is to come. The creation groans as in childbirth, waiting for that new world to be delivered. And we ourselves, we hope. We hope, Paul says, with patience. But I'm not sure I'm the best one to talk about that. But that's what Paul says. We wait with patience. Suffering in this world and living with the assured hope of glory that is to come. Those two things go hand in hand. They are just simply part of who we are. Groaning and hope. Groaning and assurance concerning God's promises. I mean, that's just the way it is. That's the way it's always been. And that's the way it will be until the Lord returns. That's hard to, to hold on to. Times, at times when our, our lives or, or the, the lives of those we love seem to have just been turned upside down. And yet, we're told, look at verse 24. We're told in verse 24 that in this hope we were saved. That hope is not something that we can yet see. That hope is yet something which is to come. And that hope is something for which we wait with patience. But that hope is ours. It can be hard to hold on to that hope, but it is the promise of God. This future hope, we wait for it, Paul says, and you can see how disturbing this is to me. We, we hold on to it, Paul says, with patience. Now, how patient are you? Well, I'm eager for what is to come. Now I'm told to be patient. I can remember the first time Linda and her family, who lived about 100 miles from my home, when they were coming to visit with my family for the first time. Repeatedly, I got up out of the living room chair and went to the, went to the front window to see if they had come. I mean, I must have gotten up out of that chair and gone to that window 50 times. And I can remember thinking to myself, where are they? How slow does that old man drive anyway? I wasn't patient. I wanted my beloved to be there with her family so that our families could begin to know one another. John Stott says, we are to wait neither so eagerly that we lose patience, nor so patiently, that's not my problem, but neither are we to wait so patiently that we lose our expectation. We are to live with this tension. The realities of life in this world and the hope of that which is yet to come. 
which Paul says in part is why the Lord, why God the Father sends God the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Look at verse 26. The Spirit comes to help us in our weakness, particularly in our weakness of trying to understand what in the world is going on and therefore trying to understand, Lord, how am I to pray? Haven't you ever faced a situation where you knew what you were supposed to do was to go to the Lord in prayer, but you didn't have any idea what to pray? You just couldn't find the words. All you could do was groan. All you could do was grown. But the Spirit's there, and he groans for us, not because he doesn't know how to pray, but because he's identifying with our groaning. And God the Father, we're told, hears the groans of God the Holy Spirit, and you're told in verse 27 that knowing both your hearts and the mind of the Holy Spirit, God the Father hears our prayers, the prayers of God the Holy Spirit that are offered up on our behalf, prayers that will accord perfectly with the will of God the Father. Now, that means, believer, that you've got two advocates. You have two advocates. You've got God the Son who forever lives to make intercession for you in the courts of heaven, God the Son, who ever lives to make intercession for you in the courts of heaven, and God the Holy Spirit, who intercedes for you in and from your heart even if all you could do is groan. And therefore, Paul says in verse 28, these things we know. One, we know that God is at work. Two, we know that God is at work for the good of his people. Three, we know that God works for our good in all things. Four, we know that God works in all things for the good of those who love him. And fifthly, we know that those who love God are those who have been called by him because he first loved them, called to love him, and called to be used by him to fulfill his purposes. And that's what we're going to see when we come to our study of Genesis 37 through 50. I mean, eventually we'll come to Genesis 50 verse 20, and we'll hear Joseph tell his brothers you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. Now, that's so easy to hear. That's far more difficult to believe, especially as we consider some of the details in the, in the relationship that existed between Joseph and his brothers. But that's the bottom line. That's always the bottom line. It appears 
that all of this was just simply evil. But God has a good purpose. How hard is that to get a handle on? We know and we believe what is written at the end of Romans chapter 8. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me just give you a personal illustration from the history of my family. dad was a medic in the Second World War. My family is all from South Carolina, east of Columbia. But after the Second World War, my father had to go north to find work. And so, even though I always tell this to the embarrassment of my mother, so don't tell her this, okay? Even though I was conceived in South Carolina, I was born and raised in New Jersey. But we lived in the city of Trenton. My brother's walking home from school. He steps out between two parked cars. He's hit by a truck. And within an hour, he's dead. My mother's faith was always sure and sound. My father's faith was always a little questionable. But now the Lord uses those tragic events to begin to do something in his life. First of all, they decide to move out of the city. They, they build a house in Ewing Township so that we don't have to live any longer within the, the city of Trenton. The family behind us the name the Loxtons, wonderful people with the Lord. Mr. Loxton, as my parents are moving into this new house that my dad built, every house I lived in, my father built, he built three houses. I can't drive a nail straight, but my father built three houses. So we move into this house my dad has built. Mr. Loxton comes up to welcome us as a good neighbor. And he invites my father and mother and me, my sister's not yet born, he invites us all to church. So my mother encourages my father to do so. We go to church with the Loxtons. It happens to be a church whose style of worship was, let us say, a little more enthusiastic than my father was accustomed to. So after church, Mr. Loxton comes up and he says to my dad, glad you were there, how was it? And my father in his typical style says to Mr. Loxton, well, every, just about every time I got focused on what the preacher was saying, Someone would stand up, wave their hand, shout glory, hallelujah, 
and I'd lose train, I'd just lose the train of everything that was being said. Well, you know, you would think that a Mr. Loxton could hear that, be insulted, and just sort of turn and storm away. It's not what he did. He said to my dad, well, let me tell you this. My dad's name was Lennon, long before John Lennon. You can tell, my name is Render, my dad's name is Lennon, we're just, we've got all these family names that just keep circulating. So, Mr. Loxton says, Lennon, let me tell you, right around the corner from us is a little Bible Presbyterian church that you might find more to your liking. And so my family, directed by a man in a far different denomination, end up in the Bible Presbyterian Church of Trenton, which is now part of the PCA. And that's where I'm raised. And in that church, Dr. Elmer Smith, the pastor, ministers to my father. His faith is rekindled, and eventually he will become a deacon, and then he will become a ruling elder in the PCA. And of course, the impact upon me I will spend eternity trying to fully appreciate the impact of all of that upon me. The past few days have been days of weeping, of groaning, of mourning, because things have happened that just aren't supposed to be. No one should pretend that these events aren't hard for us to get our arms around. But scripture calls upon us to weep with those who weep. And weep we have. And by God's grace, may we not weep as those who have no hope. May God the Holy Spirit minister to us and to those we love. May he interpret our groanings before the throne of heaven. And may he bless the family stricken with loss, his comfort and assurance, that even though they may not understand, and we may not understand, the whys and the wherefores, we know that all these things are in the Lord's hands. And it's in that truth that we rest. It's in that truth that I rest. And I rest there by faith. I rest there because it is my hope. It's not a hope that I can yet see. But I know it is the promised hope of God. May we rest even as we weep and moan. May we be assured that those now absent from us are with the Lord. And that one day, just as I've tried to share with you a, a family story, 
one day the veil's going to be pulled back and we can spend eternity sharing with one another. I didn't understand for a moment what the Lord was doing, but let me show you what he was about. Let's pray. Father, teach us these truths. Impress them upon our minds and hearts. Father, we weep with those who weep and look forward when we might rejoice with those who rejoice. Be merciful to us, O Lord, by the Holy Spirit, minister to us. Hear our groans. Comfort us. Wrap your arms around us and give us a sure and certain faith in your sure and certain promises. And all God's people said,